Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barblat. I am honored and blessed to be in dialogue today with Dr. Barak Cohen. He is a senior lecturer of Talmudic literature at Bar Ilan University. We are here today to discuss his book, The Legal Methodology of Late Nehardean Sages in Sassanian Babylonia, published by Brill Publishers. 2011. Barack, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. How, can, to begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did your enthusiasm for the study of Talmud come from? Where did you grow up? How did your interest in the study of Talmud lead you to this topic? Were there any formative events in your life that led you to this field and to this particular area of research? Um, during the 90s, I learned at uh, Yeshivat Bnei Akiva in Kfarway, and then after finishing my high school, I went straight into KBY, Kerem Beyavni Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. Came over to Bar Ilan University. My original plan was to study medicine, mm-hmm. and I used to volunteer on the intensive intensive care units in Magen David Adom in Israel. And um, while studying at Bar Ilan University for my first uh, degree, I had a very very interesting and great Talmud Chacham professor of Talmudic uh, literature. His name was Professor Meir Simcha Pelbl from mm-hmm. Yeshiva University. And um, um, when I studied in his classes, which were then uh, compulsory c- uh, courses, um, it was so interesting that I couldn't, uh, I- I'll put it this way, I knew that this would be the field that I uh, wanted to do the rest of my life. And uh, he never left me. He did everything he could in order to um, have me as a master student for the my thesis. And then my he was my advisor for my PhD studies and so on. And uh, this is how I, uh, I got here. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? Uh, the book itself is trying to uh, analyze the way the rabbis in ancient, in late antiquity, how they thought, how they ruled, and how they interpreted earlier sources. That's the main idea of the entire book. Mm. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, I want them to try and to understand how important it is to understand the way the sages in late antiquity um, ruled in daily life. Because you know that nowadays the Talmud is a the Babylonian Talmud, mainly the Babylonian Talmud, is considered as a canonical text. This is the basis basis for many of the poske halacha, many rulers in Middle Ages and even nowadays. Many many rabbis in their drashot public ceremonies and so on, uh, use the Talmud and the Talmudic literature in general to um, to explain many theological opinions, many theological real, uh, uh, halachic rulings and so on. And they use the Talmud to apply it to daily life. How reliable are the traditions pertaining to the rabbis that you examine in this book? What debates about their reliability exist how do you ascertain their reliability as a researcher and a scholar? There are many, many scholars who are very skeptical about the reliability of attributions in the Babylonian Talmud. What's the meaning of being skeptical? The meaning of this is the question whether if we have, for instance, a tradition attributed to one of the sages in Babylonia or in Eretz Israel in Palestine, are they indeed reliable? Could we count on them as reliable sources or stories about the sages? Did they really say what uh, was attributed to them? More and more scholars or studies in recent years indeed uh, show us 
that one should be indeed skeptical about many of the traditions. However, one should never generalize and say that the entire Talmud is a late editorial work and the traditions were attributed in a fictional way to earlier sages. In other words, many studies show in recent years that indeed many, or I wouldn't say most of them, but many of them are indeed reliable sources, and we can count on these sources as reliable uh, and attributed to the name of the sages um, in in Palestine or in Babylonia. How has your own thinking changed and evolved? How has this book been received by different audiences? Because in, in modern, you know that in modern research, that, that we believe that the scientific study of the Talmud, when we try to understand the, the sages and what they said in the world of the sages, one should, the Talmud should be interpreted according to its historical context and not according to the late reasoning of each rabbi. One should not interpret the Talmud from a later period to the earlier period. This allows us to understand the basis of many controversies in the Talmud itself. In other words, many scholars nowadays, specifically from the late five or six years, understood that in order to interpret it, interpret a specific ruling or interpretation of an Amora, you must go back and try to analyze the reasoning by understanding his legal methodology. This allows us to interpret any specific case attributed to that sage based on his own way of thinking and reasoning in many, many Babylonian Subiot and their parallels also in the Palestinian Talmud. This is the way I believe we should interpret the Talmud itself. And many scholars such as Professor Bro Robert Brody from Hebrew University, who's published a book on, on Tractate Ketubot just two, three months ago, quotes this book and even argues that the next stage of Talmudic research must be based on the legal of analysis of the legal methodology of the Babylonian Amorai. For the benefit of our listeners who might not have background in Talmud, can you explain the meanings of the terms Tanaim, Amoraim, Savoraim, and Stamaim? Okay, let's see. The, um, the, let's begin with the Tanaim. Tanaim are sages who lived mainly in Palestine between the destruction of the Second Temple period meaning the year 70 AD, to the year 200 or 220 uh, in Palestine. We know of certain very, very few Tanaim, or sages who lived during this Tanaitic period in Babylonia as well. But I would say it is a very, very uh, difficult topic, and we still are not sure how many Tanaim were active during the Tanaitic period in Babylonia. Uh, that's a very, very difficult topic. In any case, a Tana is mainly from Palestine, and with and and we uh, and they are sages who lived between seventy and two two hundred or two twenty the days of the uh, reduction of the Mishnah by Rabbi Yuda the Prince. Mora is a sage who lived in Palestine or in Babylonia after the death one generation after the death of Rabbi Judah the Prince in Palestine between, let's say, 230 AD to the year in Palestine to the year of 400, or a bit earlier, maybe 370, 400. And in Babylonia, the Amoraic period ends in the year 500. Saboraim, or Savoraim in Hebrew, are sages who lived in Babylonia after the Amoraic period, mainly from the year 500, to 590, maybe even 600. And according to other views in the Geonic period, according to testimony, testimonies from the Geonim, it might be that they lived even to the uh, very, very close to the year 700 in Babylonia. So these are the main uh, terms dealing with 
the sages themselves, Tanaim, and then we have Amoraim. Mishnah is the legal text redacted by Rabbi Judah the prince before his death in about 280, and the Baraitot, meaning outside traditions, the traditions that were left outside the Mishnah during the reductional process by Rabbi Judah the prince, were all collected by his students and um, and that's the reason, and they were all collected to the Tosefta. Tosefta is additional Tanaitic traditions to the Mishnah in very, very basic terms. So we know what is the Mishnah, the legal text redacted by Rabbi Judah the Prince, and then we know that the Tosefta is also the meaning which has in it the main traditions, legal traditions outside the Mishnah, left by outside by Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Baraita meaning Bar, an outside tradition, left outside by Rabbi Judah. Can you tell us about the history of scholarship on this topic? Many scholars, such as Solomon Fu from the end of the 19th century in Berlin, in his book, Die Juden in Babylonia, in German, and scholars such as Meir Dov Yudilovich and Ze'ev, Yavitz, and many, many other scholars thought that since Nehardea was a very, very ancient town, since we know the existence of Jewish communities in the city of Nehardea, northern part of Babylonia, Iraq, nowadays Iraq, since it, we know of the existence of Jewish communities in the end of the Second Temple period, so many scholars thought or believe that Neardea has many, many Jewish ancient traditions from earlier times. And therefore, I took this as a test case. I tried to analyze the main legal traditions attributed to sages in Neardea, and I went and tried to look for earlier traditions attributed to the sages. And to my surprise, I was really amazed to find out that many of these traditions have no earlier roots in Babylonia or in Palestine. Many of them were created by Babylonian sages during the 4th and beginning of 5th centuries. And, um, and this shows us how the halakha was developing from Tanaitic, Palestinian halakha, to Babylonian halakha. Also, I should add that many of these traditions, halakhic traditions, were also created in the Sasanian realia, meaning that many of these traditions' rulings and legal rulings and interpretations were based on the legal Sasanian system in Babylonia and not on earlier Jewish roots or on Palestinian roots in, in uh, Palestine. This was already mentioned by Professor Yaakov Elman in many, many of his studies dealing with the comparative research of Sasanian and Jewish law in the Talmudic period. How does contemporary scholarship on legal realism in the field of law factor into your analysis? In what ways do the figures that you examine in this book complement such perspectives? In what ways do the sages that you analyze in this book contradict or challenge or complement legal realism as it is understood in contemporary studies in legal theory? I'll give you an example. We know of a very, very interesting sage, very bold personality. His name of this, uh, this sage's name was Amema, and he lived from the end of the fourth century, and he died in the beginning of the fifth century. I would say that analysis of his entire corpus of traditions in the Babylonian Talmud, more than 200 traditions, show us that this stage, that this sage, legal reasoning, legal interpretations, and so on, is what we know of legal realism in, in uh, legal philosophy. And you know that many, many scholars, many rabbis nowadays keep claiming that the halakha never changes. In other words, the halakha mentioned in the Bible or in the Mishnah, Tanaitic literature, and so on, never changes according to, to the realia, different realities 
in different times. And when you analyze Amemar's traditions, you see exactly the opposite. You see how many of the laws were rejected by Amemar and they were adopted to change in daily life. In many cases, for instance, he either rejected explicitly the halakha in the Mishnah because he claimed that this specific halakha should be applied only in Palestine in the Tanaitic period, but in Babylonian realia, it should be changed. He was very, very uh, bold in his, not only his personality, but also in his legal rulings. And many, many rabbis, Talmudic interpreters, such as Rabbi Menachem HaMeiri, in his book, Beta Bechira, and so on, were astonished by these rulings because the Meiri claims that if you do so, if you go according to Amemar's rulings, the Mishnah or the earlier Halakha has no meaning because according to Amemar, according to his interpretations, many of these world rulings are not relevant to daily life in his specific time. And when you compare it to nowadays, Ultra-Orthodox rabbis, you see that uh, ultra-Orthodox legal rulings by famous rabbis, um, I'm not sure that they're correct by saying that halakha is never subject to change. But I don't think this is indeed the case. The more you learn about the Talmud, which is the basic for Jewish life nowadays, you see how the halakha was very different from what we know of or from what the rabbis nowadays in contemporary society, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, how they um, interpret the Talmud and the Halakha. Where was Nehardea located? Can you describe its social and physical geography? Can you describe the history of its destruction? Nehardea was situated in the northern part of Iraq on the Euphrat River and it was about between 20 to 30 kilometers south of the great city of Pumbedita. Pumbedita is very close to the city, the great Muslim Shiite city nowadays, which is known as Al Fallujah. Very, very big city. And Nehardia is identified with a small, small village known as nowadays as Tal Nihar. This is based on our Professor Aaron Oppenheimer's book, Jewish Babylonia in the Talmudic period. He does the geography of the entire cities in Babylonia, and this is according to his specific identification. Now, Nehardia was a very, as I mentioned before, Nehardia was a very ancient Jewish city and is known already by Josephus, mentioned by Josephus, as the city that the Jews used to donate they have a shekel to the second, the yearly donation to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In later periods, we know that Rabbi Akiva visited the city of Nehardia in order to inter intercalate the year, and I am sure that Rabbi Akiva did not immigrate to Nehardia for 10 Jewish people who lived there. It's probably, uh, I guess, that Nehardia was... Um, uh, had a very Jewish community, and that's one of the reasons why Rabbi Akiva visited the city in order to make sure that this, the intercalation of the year was indeed subject to the authority of the Palestinian sages of that time. And we have more, um, but, that's, but, but that's a very, very long story. We have more traditions about Nehardia during the Tanaitic uh, discussion. Yeah, yeah, can you just, describe the destruction of Nehardea in historical context? Yes, um, Nehardea was destructed uh, in the city of, uh, in the year 259 AD, according to Geonic traditions, which are considered to be very, very reliable, based on Professor Yeshayahu Gafni from Hebrew University and Professor Robert Brody, also from Hebrew University. And uh, we indeed know that um, from archaeological evidence that indeed a figure named Papa Barnatsu, which is also mentioned by Geonic, by Rav Shrira Gaon, is in, in his famous epistle in the 10th century, uh, this collaborates also the archaeological evidence of a figure named Papa Barnatsu, or Netzer, who destructed with the Romans 
the Jewish city of Nehardia. But more than that is very, very difficult to say because we hardly have any outside um, evidence about the city of Nehardia or Pumbedita in that period of time. What can students of other fields in law and legal theory learn from your book? What can students of Islamic law, critical legal studies, or American constitutional law, for example, learn from Talmudic debates? Many of the findings of uh, legal philosophers dealing with legal philosophy nowadays could be traced. Many of their conclusions about legal analogies, legal inference, uh, inference, hesekim, inference, inference, um, could be traced back more than a thousand five years ago. For instance, uh, legal analogies. Many, many scholars nowadays try to analyze different kinds of legal analogies in contemporary law. But in one of my studies published by Dine Israel, Faculty of Law in Tel Aviv University, I tried to show, argue, that many of the legal analogies in contemporary law, mainly in the United States, has um, earlier roots, mainly from the Talmud itself, because the Talmud has, if you analyze legal analogies in the Babylonian Talmud, you may find that there are many kinds of legal analogies and inference in the Babylonian Talmud itself, and many of them are very, very similar to what we find nowadays in legal philosophies. And I think that the more you get to know the Talmud itself, its way of thinking, legal rulings, and so on, the easier it will be for legal uh, scholars to understand how uh, it was, um, how they functioned in, um, in ancient societies. What does your book teach us about the nature and character of halachic decision-making and the system of halachic decision-making that existed among the Babylonian sages? I would say, I would summarize the entire book in one or two sentences, short sentences. I would say that the law in Sasanian Babylonia depends more on the sages themselves and their own reasoning more than on earlier traditions. In other words, don't quote me, don't quote the Mishnah, don't quote the Baraita or earlier Tanaitic traditions or even local customs as the basis for law, because what really matters and was crucial is the way how the rabbi, the head of the academy, or yeshiva in Hebrew, how he interpreted and applied the law in his own, in his own town. This is, I would say, one of the basic conclusions of the entire. And this has to do with the legal realism we just spoke about, because Jewish society was based more on the way the rabbis thought and ruled than on earlier traditions. And this has to do with the legal realism nowadays. How were the decisions of the authorities examined in this book enforced? Who enforced them? What were the limits of the enforcement of the positions taken by the sages in Babylonia. In, in Sasanian Babylonia, many of the rabbis saw themselves entitled to interpret earlier traditions in a very forced way. And their students could ask them, why are they interpreting the Mishnah or the Baraita or the biblical verse in a forced way? But at the end of the day, they never changed it. Why? Because the sage himself was considered as the authority, as the most important authority of law, and the way he interpreted the law and applied it to daily life, this is exactly what was important. So in other words, you never needed someone to enforce the law, because Rosh Hashiva is considered as the most important authority of law, and he created either new halacha or interpreted the earlier traditions in the way he saw it should be interpreted. And this is exactly how the law was applied and created in Sasanian Babylonia. What does your book teach us about the nature, character, and theory of arguments and argumentation? First of all, many of the arguments are very different from one sage 
to the other sage. One sage, one sage's argument would be Palestinian traditions. It was influenced by Palestinian traditions. And in every case, the first question he asked himself is, what did Rabbi Yochanan in Tiberia or what did Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi in Lod, southern part, part of Israel, of Palestine, what did he say on this topic? If he had his own opinion, so he himself, the Babylonian sage, saw himself as subject to their authority. Another sage who disagrees with him, in many cases, would base his ruling on his own reason. A third case or sage would base himself on a local custom or on Sasanian law, legal system or legal traditions. Every Amora, when you analyze their systematically, their con um, literary con uh, contribution to the Talmud, you could see that every Amora he has his own reason, his own basis for law. And in many cases, you could explain the many, many controversies between different colleagues in the Babylonian Talmud. For instance, between Rav and Shmuel, they have hundreds of disagreements between them in the Babylonian or in the Palestinian Talmud. There are many, many disagreements between Abaya and Rava in the Babylonian Talmud. What is the basis? I believe that when you have so many controversies, systematic controversies between Babylonian and Amoraim, it probably comes from a different background, different way of thinking, different methodology, and so on. And we have very interesting studies dealing and analyzing these controversies. For, for instance, Professor David Henschke, in one of his famous articles in Tarbitz during the 80s, I believe it was 81 or 80, 82, he tried to show that in tens of examples of controversies between Abaye and Rava, they have different, um, they originate in the, their attitude towards the Mishnah as a legal authority. Abaye did not see the Mishnah as a legal source for daily life in every topic, legal topic, and in many cases even emended the Mishnah in order to apply the Mishnah to daily life in Sasani and Babylonia. In Rava's legal system or legal thinking, the Mishnah is the source for every halacha and you study or learn new halachot even from the style and wordings of the Mishnah. He applied the Mishnah or he saw the Mishnah as Rabbi Akiva saw exactly the Torah. You learn new traditions or halachic traditions from each and every word. You don't have extra wording wordings in the Mishnah. Every word has a meaning, and you must learn new halachot from this wording. So you can see that by learning the different styles of the Amoraim, different methodologies, you can explain in a systematic way the basis for many of their controversies. Can you describe any biographical information that is known about the figures you examine in this book? What historical details and agadic details exist about the specific sages? In modern research, one should um, differentiate between Agadic material and legal material in the Babylonian Talmud. In other words, Agadic material might be a very, very problematic. They might be very problematic traditions and unreliable. They were probably created in the post-Talmudic period. And therefore, one should be very cautious in applying biographer, biography uh, uh, information from Agadic material to their daily life. Halakha and terminology is more historical, and therefore when you, buy, when you build a biography of the Babylonian Amoraim, the first thing you need to do is base yourself on legal traditions attributed to the sages and not Agadic material, which could be very, very problematic, historically speaking. Uh, now, in many cases, we don't have too much. First of all, it should be noted that none of the rabbis 
in the Babylonian Talmud, even in Germany, has we have about them um, outside sources, sources outside the Babylonian Talmud, extra sources from the Babylonian uh, Talmud. So our basic or the most important um, source is the Babylonian Talmud, Talmud itself. And therefore, we apply and study the sages based on the Babylonian Talmud and the Palestinian, if they have any Palestinian traditions, parallels in the Yerushalmi, in the, in the Palestinian. Now, the sages I have analyzed in the book are Ravdimi Minehardia, Ravsvidmi Nehardia, Ravdimi Minehardia, we have like 50 traditions about him, Amaymar, 200 traditions, but all other traditions about different sages are very, and it's very, very hard to build a biography based on uh, this material. I can say that based on the legal material attributed to Amemar in the Babylonian Talmud, we get to see that he was a very, very bold figure. And in many cases, he rejected Tanaiti Halakha in the Mishnah or in the Baraitot. He even rejected Halakha in the Bible itself, or even rejected the Halakha in his local town itself. And he says that explicitly. And this shows us the connection or the linkage between the sage's personality or bold personality and his literary contribution to the Babylonian Talmud. But I would say this is one of the greatest figures in the end, who lived in the end of the Babylonian, uh, the Talmudic period, the Babylonian Talmudic period, and he was the teacher of Rav Ashi, who is known to be one of the reductors of the Babylonian Talmud. What social and political issues were the sages that you examine in this book coping with in their specific context? How does this background inform their perspectives and their methodology? Um, from a political point of view, I would say that Amema was a uh, very authoritative, halachically speaking, authoritative uh, figure, not only on Ravashi, but also on the exilarch known as Huna Bar Natan. Huna Bar Natan was probably the exilarch of his time. And we know about the different connections or the connections between Huna Bar Natan and the Sasanian king in that in the fifth century, based on the stories that Ameymar told, uh, told uh, Ameymar and the way Ameymar interprets these stories. Um, in that time, but um, it's it's very hard to say because the 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 amount of information we have on the political situation in Babylonia of that time is very very uh, limited. And I would say that, except for that specific uh, information, we don't know too much about these figures. I would say that the more you study on Amemar's legal rulings, you get to know more about Rav Ashi's legal rulings and traditions in the Babylonian Talmud, or as the reduction, reductor of the Babylonian Talmud. But that's uh, that's basically what we know about their uh, political and social um, um, information about the Talmud. I would also say that Amemar was also very sensitive to social aspects, legal aspects in the Babylonian Talmud. As, and I, as I mentioned before, Amemar was willing to reject many of the halachot in the Mishnah or Baraitot or even in the Bible in, in a lenient way in order to uh, apply uh, it in a, in, a, in a better form in Machoza, in the Sasanian capital for Jewish people in the Sasanian capital or in Nehardea. He was very bold in that respect. But this is what we know from social and political uh, background of that, of the, of that uh, time, end of 4th century, beginning of 5th century in Sasanian. What does your book teach us about the relationship between Halakha and Agada? Um, the book does, my book analyzes mainly Halakhic legal traditions. In my book, I hardly uh, deal with analysis of Agadic material, but the latest, say, a scholar who dealt with the linkage and uh, a linkage between Halakha and Agada was Professor William Bacher, who died 
1914 in Budapest, um, he he dealt with the linkage and the um, and the connection between halakha and agada legal metho- between the legal methodology and the way the same rabbis applied the agada in Sasanian Babylonia. And he found, he's the first and last scholar to find the, such a linkage between the the way the sages interpret biblical and Tanaitic um, halacha and the way the same scholars also interpreted uh, the Midrashim or the Tanaitic, uh, yeah, Tanaitic halacha in biblical verses in the Agada, in the Agadic material. But as far as I know, no one has dealt with this issue or topic since the beginning of the 19th, uh, 20th century. Are there any references to the sages you examine in this book in the Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud? If yes, what are the similarities and differences between the Yerushalmi and the Bavli? If not, why are certain figures absent from the Yerushalmi? Can you compare and contrast references to any of the figures in the Babylonian Talmud that you examine here to what they are depicted as saying in the Jerusalem Talmud? Um, okay. Um, the the Babylonian sages that I deal with in this specific book are not mentioned in the Palestinian Talmud. Why? Because the Palestinian period, the Amoraic period in Palestine ends as I mentioned before, in the year 350, 370 AD, and so on. But these sages, their main, their contribution and chronological period begin exactly at the end of the 4th century and during the beginning of the 5th century. In other words, the reason they are not mentioned in the Palestinian Talmud is simply attributed to the, to the, to that uh, chronological uh, rhythm. However, since then, I have dealt with the legal met- analysis of legal methodology of other Babylonian Amoraim, such as Shmuel and so on. And I found that there is a huge correlation between the legal rulings of these specific Amoraim and their material and the halachic material attributed to them in the Palestinian Talmud. This shows us, this is one of the reasons I believe that these attributions are indeed reliable, historically speaking. Why? Because if they indeed went through a reductional process or even invented and attributed to these Amoraim by a very late editor who lived during the 6th or 7th centuries in Babylonia, how would you explain this correlation between the traditions attributed, for instance, to Shmuel in the Babylonian Talmud, his system, style, and methodology, and Shmuel's literature in the Palestinian Talmud? I just want to remind you that Shmuel is mentioned hundreds of times in the Palestinian Talmud. And you, when you analyze his contribution in the Babylonian Talmud and his contribution in the Palestinian Talmud, you find a very serious co- correlation between the entire legal system attributed to Shmuel. And this is one of the reasons it cannot be, in my opinion, an invasion, a, 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 a unreliable sources are invented by a late editor of the Babylonian Talmud. Why? Because I just want to remind you again that the Palestinian Talmud ends at the end of the 4th century, and it cannot be invented by someone who lived in the 6th or 7th centuries in Babylonia. In other words, it's not fictional. Shmuel is indeed, his legal system is indeed basically Reliable. What does your book teach us about the socio-historical evolution of the Talmud? We get to see from uh, recent studies that the Talmud itself was composed from different literary layers and not by one editor who lived during the 6th or 7th centuries. And I'll explain why. Because we see that the Talmud itself was, first of all, the different terms and legal methodology in many cases, they developed during the ages. A specific term has a specific meaning in a certain generation, but in later generations, that term 
expanded its meaning. And I see no reason why I, a late editor who lived during the sixth or seventh centuries would create such a phenomena in the Babylonian Talmud other than a natural, like in our language, natural um, development of the language and the Talmudic terms. But not only that, we know that specific terms are attributed to specific generations in Babylonia. And these terms do not exist in later generations, only in specific generations, but later generations don't use that specific word for that meaning. They change the term to a different term or different uh, Amoraic um, wordings in the Talmud. And this also provides us with a general picture of how the Talmud was created layer after layer uh, during the uh, Talmudic period. This is the testimony of Rav Shurir Gaon about the composition of the Babylonian Talmud. And this is also collaborated by the different um, studies by Professor Avraham Weiss during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and also by Professor, my father, Professor Avinoam Cohen, and Professor Richard Kalmin, who dealt with the terminology and its development during the ages. In what ways, if any, does your personal identity and life context give you unique insights as you examine the texts and sages that you study in this book? What does it mean to you to study the Talmud as an Israeli in the 21st century? First of all, I would say that um, learning Talmud in such a way being, brings you to be very, very critical about Jewish traditions in general. Why? Because when you get to know the sages, their ways of rulings, um, in a different way, you get a different picture from the way the sages in Middle Ages, Harishonim and Achronim, interpret the Babylonian Talmud. And you may, you are able, you have a tool in which you are able to analyze and study the Talmud independently from the Parshanut, the interpretive um, traditions of this, uh, of the rabbis in Middle Ages and in modern times from the different uh, way of analyzing the tradition. And this makes you be very, very critical. Many Talmidei Yeshivot, or I would say um, um, uh, students who study at the Yeshivot in Israel and so on, when they come over to our department, many of them, uh, it influences their way of thinking and studying the Talmud. And unfortunately, a few of them, my students, even became non-religious during the years. Why? Because when you study the Talmud in this critical way, this is one of the reasons why you become um, very critical about Judaism in general. I would say that also, um, by analyzing the Talmud, you have a new way of interpreting the Talmud. And, um, and this itself creates a new scientific um, way of interpreting the Talmud as a, uh, as a research method. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a new way of understanding the Talmud. But not only that, you get to know more about the sages, their historical background, their legal rulings, the different terminology of the Talmud, and many of my students who are also rabbis in different um, academies in Israel um, are enriched by this information, and they keep telling me all the time how they never studied in such a way in the yeshiva. And all of a sudden, they get to understand in a new way what is the different meanings of similar terms in the Talmud, the historical background, the study school, the yeshivot, and the different terms of the way the rabbis used to study in the yeshivot and so on. On page 167, there is a passage where you quote Israeli High Court Justice Aharon Barak's words in the context of interpreting the jurisprudence of Rabbi Zavid of Mehardea. You quote Aharon Barak to the effect that, quote-unquote, a word in a statute is a creature of its environment, 
Its character is a function of its context. What are the interconnections between this perspective of Chief, Chief Justice Barak and Rabbi Zavid of Nehardea's worldview? Aharon Barak published a very very important book and in called Interpretation in Law. And he mm -hmm. tries to analyze the different interpretations and application of the law by judges in contemporary legal systems in Israel. And there he claims that when you interpret a statute or a specific law, you must take into consideration the context in which this statute or law was created. In other words, when you interpret it, when you interpret the law or statute, you must explain it based on its um, historical or legal context. And when you apply this, while analyzing Ravzvid's interpretation to earlier Amoraic or Tanaitic traditions, you find something which is very from the city of Nehardea, he was a Meymar's rabbi or teacher. And he used when every time um, he heard a first forced interpretation to a Tanaitic or a more earlier Amoraic halacha, he used to criticize and reject this interpretation in cases where this interpretation that cannot be applied based on the historical, uh, on the meaning, the contextual meaning of that specific law. Therefore, when, for instance, with when Amema or some other scholar interpreted the Mishnah, and this interpretation cannot be applied or explained to the Mishnah based on its contextual meaning, he used to reject this meaning. How did he create the contextual meaning? Because what Rav Zvid Menhardia usually does is he quotes the end of that tradition in the Baraitot, in the parallel Tanaitic traditions, in the Tosefta. And he demanded that every interpretation to a Mishnah should be also uh, log should be logical in its contextual on its contextual meaning in the Tosefta, because the, as I said, we mentioned before, the Baraitot are left outside by Rabbi, were left outside by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the prince, and and Rav Zvid ben used to quote them in order to analyze and be, and he used to be very critical about interpretations of different sages who did not, who could not be explained also based on the contextual meaning of the text. What is the relevance of your book in the year 2023? In what ways, if at all, can it speak to current issues? In what ways can it speak to contemporary Israelis? First of all, the Talmud, we should know, it should be noted that the Talmud is a canonical text nowadays, and it has an influence on all religious um, fields in contemporary halachic system in all um, Jewish, uh, all, uh, all Orthodox communities. Now, the more you get to understand how the law was created in the Talmud itself, the more you get to understand how the how Judaism was functioning in ancient societies in comparison to nowadays. And this is one of the implications I mentioned before about being critical about Jewish traditions, because then you get to know how the law was created in contrary to nowadays. That's the first thing. The second thing is when you analyze the rabbi's contribution and each and every sage's different contribution, different way of thinking, different world, different methods of interpretation, and so on, you have a new way of a scientific understanding of the Talmud. In other words, one should not explain the Talmud based on Middle Age rabbis in Middle Ages literature. And in order to understand the Talmud in a better way, you must get to know their legal, um, the legal uh, um, uh, reasoning and legal methodology, and only by get, and only after knowing this, 
you may come back to this or that specific sugya and interpret it in its uh, original uh, meaning. So in, in other words, getting to know the Talmud and how the Talmud was created, that is the, the basis for Judaism nowadays. And the more you get to know about, about the Talmud, the more you get to know or being critical about nowadays, nowadays uh, rulings in contemporary legal system. I think that's the reason why uh, it has its impact on um, Jewish um, Orthodox, Orthodox uh, halakha nowadays. The second thing is, as also I mentioned before, is the scientific study of the Babylonian Talmud. There are many, many, all kinds of intentions and all kinds of problems explaining the rabbis' uh, rulings and interpretations and so on. And by getting to know his specific legal system, it, this allows you to offer a new explanation for their um, legal um, legal methodology in, uh, and rulings in the Babylon Talmud. What does your book teach us? about the relationship between social customs and halakha in the context of the sages in Babylonian communities under the Sassanian Empire. I could say this, that in recent years, not specifically in the book, but in recent years, I have found something very interesting, which really puzzled me. Authority was attributed only to specific sages in Sasanian Babylonia. Not every sage was considered as an authoritative source. In other words, only Rashi Yeshivot, meaning head of academy schools in or Babylonia, were considered as authoritative source, as binding source in the eyes of later sages. In other words, if a later sage ruled or um, um, had a custom, legal custom, in his town, which contradicts earlier sages, one of the sages that I mentioned before, he was immediately refuted by one of his colleagues and asked why did he um, contradict the earlier sage's ruling or statement before him. Then, if he did not have or explain um, his own reasoning and why he contradicted the earlier sage's uh, halakha, opinion was rejected. Exactly like it, like in regard to Tanaitic Palestinian halacha. Therefore, when he was refuted by, by one of his colleagues, he always tried to explain why he did so, because the situation here is very different, or sometimes he would explain and say that he did not, he wasn't aware of this specific relations before him and so on and so on. But he was never able to reject or contribute explicitly um, the authority of the earlier Amoraic source. In other words, out of 800 Amoraim in the Babylonian Talmud, we know that only about 20 of them were considered as halachically binding a authoritative sources in Sasanian Babylon. This shows us how along the Talmudic period, we see how the rulings or the rules for halakha was functioning and um, established during the Talmudic period until the beginning of Middle Ages. What suggestions do you have for topics that students who read your book might consider examining after engaging with your study? What are some topics in Talmudic research that your book would encourage a new generation of academic Talmud scholars to pursue? First of all, this is in this question I deal mainly in, in uh, during my uh, uh, work here at the Department of Talmud at Barilan University with my uh, with my students. Many of them, specifically in recent years, deal with trying. They're trying to analyze. Uh, controversies between Rav and Shmuel, between Rav Huna and Rav Chusta, Rav Chizda, main great authorities, uh, contemporary authorities in Sasanian Babylonia. And by doing so, they are able once, first time in, in modern scholarship, we are able to explain in a systematic way how, we, um, how every sage thought in a different way 
applied a different kind of methodology and why it usually disagreed so many times in the Babylonian parallels in the Palestinian. This is one field which I think is very, very important and there's so much work to do uh, in the field. The second um, field, I would say, is Talmudic terminology. Terminology is not just a specific literary term, but there's a whole way of thinking and methodology hiding behind this specific term. And therefore, by explaining similar terms and trying to explain why the editor of the, in this case, used a specific term and why something which seems to be very similar, similar refutation, questions, question, answer, and so on. Why is it mentioned in a different term in the Babylonian Talmud? This also is a very important study of the Babylonian Talmud because we don't have nowadays a uh, Milan dictionary of the terms in Babylonia, a dictionary of the Amoraic terms, but a dictionary of the way of thinking hidden behind these specific terms and their developments, development during the uh, Talmudic period. This explains to us, it helps us in learning the Talmud itself. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about the relationship between this book and your later and recent scholarship? In recent years, that I, con I continued the research on the legal methodology and more of more Amoraim. And I was able to see in recent years how every Amora indeed had a different literary contribution and different methodology in the Babylonian Talmud. Then I went further and examined the in the, in the Babylonian Talmud and I was able to see how different or similar terms have different meanings and how this has its implication of the understanding of these messages. Not only that, these two studies have different implications on other fields of halacha. Um, For instance, I was able to trace and analyze the question of legal pluralism in the Babylonian Talmud. In other words, by analyzing study methods and Talmudic terminology, I was able to see, and I never... And I never planned it. it. This is one of the implications of this study, is that I found that the Talmud was such a pluralistic, so pluralistic as people or scholars claim at the Babylonian Talmud. For instance, as I mentioned, we have about 20 sages in Sasanian Babylonia that they were as authoritative sources. And one could not reject or um, negate Later sages always saw themselves subject to their own authority. And if they contradicted these traditions, they were immediately refuted by their contemporaries. So therefore, I'm not so sure that the Talmud was indeed so pluralistic and tolerant towards diverse in the Babylonian Talmud. It was, but not in the way they are uh, depicted in recent studies also say that these conclusions also um, showed more and more the, um, the dating of the Stamaitic period, meaning the anonymous voice, an anonymous uh, literary data of the Babylonian Talmud was, seems to be poetic and not at the same time. Why? Because you see more and more that a the same term might have a different and sometimes opposing meaning in the Abod and in the Stamaitic period. In other words, it seems more likely that the specific term had a development during the ages and until it had uh, a, um, a new meaning or developed to an opposing meaning in the, in the late stratum of the Bud. I don't believe that, 
I, I, uh, who used the term in a, exactly an opposite way of understanding, lived at the same time where the Amoraim used to interpret the term in an opposing meaning. It can't be that two figures lived exactly at the same time period. This will, hopefully, will be in three separate studies. One in Sidra, the journal for the study literature by our department, Department of Talmud, as was published by the Journal of Jewish Studies by Oxford University, 19. And a third study will be in next year by the studies quarterly by Stanford University. And I believe that um, I prepare hundreds of sugiot where you can find the different G's and different uh, meanings of the term, sometimes opposing terms in these um, in these studies. So whoever wants to broaden and try to explain and, and try to understand the implications of such studies of legal methods of the Babylonian Amorite Talmudic methodology are obviously invited to read three um, uh, of my recent studies. As we end our dialogue today, I am signing off by re reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I've been in dialogue with Dr. Barak Cohen. He is a senior lecturer of Talmudic literature at Bar Ilan University. We have been discussing his book, The Legal Methodology of Late Nehardian Sages in Sassanian Babylonia, published in Leiden, Netherlands by Brill Publishers, 2011. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. It's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. Thank you.